Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, this is Matt, and I'm grateful today to have the opportunity to interview Joshua Klein. Joshua is a craftsman, woodworker, author, magazine editor, and last but certainly not least, a ruling elder at his Mm. church. So, Joshua, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Now, sometimes when when someone says that that someone is called an author, that can mean that, that you've, you know, you've written two articles that was published in your student newspaper in high school, or it can mean a lot more. So, you know, th- these are, when I say that, that you're an author, these are not small, I mean, you, you've written books and you also, you know, p- publishing a magazine is not a small feat, which we'll get to, but I especially wanted to, to talk today just about your, your, your craft as a, a builder, a, as a woodworker. We live in in a time when white collar work is and has been the trend for decades. Now, certainly in the Western world, but in your work, you, while you certainly never denigrate that, you have gone in a different direction personally and are emphasizing. Uh, the good of well of, of woodworking of, of working with your hands. So, so what drew you into this to, to this world to this calling? Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's it's it's interesting that you know my my interest in as you talked about. I, I never want to denigrate any certain aspect of uh, the creativity or the genius of anybody's work, whether it's manual work or it's you know, cognitive, it's intellectual or spiritual work, labors in the church. Um, but I think what's really important is that we have all these things and we hold them up as true sources of wisdom. Um, and so in a, in a world that, as you said, that is very white collar work oriented and sort of a presumption that we've moved beyond so-called blue collar work. We don't need manual labor anymore, which is I would say is a, is a fallacy. <laughs> we still right. have plumbing. We still have things that need to be fixed. Um, and so uh, this, this idea that we need to move beyond it or that it's better is sort of a, a Greco-Roman, you know, denigration of the banastic arts. This putting down of manual labor is menial and drudgery and bad as if work was bad. Work was something we ought not to do. And so we want to move to a higher plane of existence. Uh, and that, uh, that, I don't think is biblical, and I don't think that really jives with um, the reality of the world we live in, that this world is very physical. Um, and so what I, the reason I got into this, and the reason I was interested in moving in a different direction, was not saying, you know, what really matters is the work of the hands, not the work of the head. It was actually more um, a, a sense of uh, helplessness, feeling like I don't actually know how to interact with the world around me. I don't know how to fix stuff. I don't know how to make stuff. I'm, I'm merely a consumer. I'm just dependent on experts. And I actually wanted to, you know, as I was trying to, I couldn't at that time articulate what it was I was trying to grasp. But um, it, I, the way I think about it now is what I was hungry for was to be a participant in my life, to actually engage and be involved in the things of my life and, and learn how to do things. And it's such a simple thing. Um, it's such a simple thing. But uh, at that time, I realized I don't just want to be a consumer. I don't want to just be dependent. I actually want to learn about the world because it's so interesting. So th- that's really what got me into it. Um, my wife was homeschooled and uh, grew up in rural Maine. And both of those two things appealed to me. So I said, okay, uh, woodworking might be a way to, to forge uh, you know, a career in rural Maine, working with my hands. Um, and you know, the, the writing and the um, that sort of work came actually later. I was just restoring antique furniture at the time. Um, so that was the draw, was to try to uh, be at home, work with my hands, and, and learn about the world in a way that I can actually fully engage. I know when some people hear that, men especially, th- th- there's something in man, or at least in, in, in many men, that wells up 
that says that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> we you know, the, the, this this image of the 19th century, it's like George Sturt's book, the, the Wheelwright. Yep. Uh, you know that that we we think that's that's it, but then we look at where we are right now and say, but I am about as far from that as I am from Thailand. So what is, you know, so, so, so there's two parts here. One part is mm-hmm. the, the fact that, that God made us to be, in, to some extent, not everyone to the same degree, but to some extent participants, like you said, in, the, in his world. Yeah. So that's one. But then also some would say, but I can never get even close to where someone like Joshua Klein is. So, so what would you say to the person that says, I wish, but I could never do that? Yeah, I think um, you don't really want to be where I'm at because I'm, I'm just on a, on a journey trying to grasp and trying to learn. I mean, maybe that is the path is that we're all trying to learn and grow more. Um, and so the reason I'm on this is because I don't actually know how to do everything, right? That's, that's what's so appealing and exciting about it. Um, but I do think there's something deep within us that um, as, as created in the image of God, that we are designed to, to want to engage creation, to work, um, not only with our heads, but, but with our hands as well. Um, and part of it, I think, is that, you know, we, what, I would, what I'm trying to uh, emphasize and highlight is again, it's not one or the other that really George Sturt had everything, right? That he actually, in his own book, he was talking about how he was trying to learn from the journeyman who he hired and they were right. laughing at him because he didn't know what he was doing. And so that's actually a good illustration of it exactly. He was saying, I really need to learn how to do this. So he rolled up his sleeves and the journeyman were trying to be respectful as he was, <laughs> you know, bungling his work. Um, but what I see in that what, that's so valuable is the desire to um, increase your capacity, to grow an agency, to develop these skills. And I, I don't think that excludes any kinds of skills. So being able to compose a compelling argument, to write a poem, to draft a business plan, to you know, launch a business, all that stuff is included, I think, in fixing your own plumbing. Right? It's, it's, this, it's the same umbrella of skill and capacity to understand the world. So if someone says, I really have a lot of head knowledge in this particular field or this area, or I'm good with the books or something, but I just don't know how to fix my car, don't feel like you do not have skills. What your goal is to broaden your framework, to broaden your skills. And so that that's what I'm looking at, is trying to be a, a, div, um, a diversified uh, craftsman, that I'm trying to dip my toes, a generalist really, trying to dip my toes into different areas because uh, there's something about specialization that is valuable, especially, especially particularly at a society-wide level, Um, but hyper-specialization can also be crippling because you only know how to do one thing. And um, cultivating agency is the sense of the, the more and more things you learn about in the world, the more and more um, you can you can move into a new field, or you can more quickly grasp a new concept because you already know about different kinds of things. That's why we have liberal arts, right? That's why we go to school, so we learn about science and mathematics and all sorts of things. We and we have gym class and we have all these things because we know that this is valuable. You need to have a you need to exercise these different areas of your your brain and your body to be able to navigate the world successfully so that's what i think is important and i think that's because god made us with minds and hands for a reason that um that we don't want to say i'm not the kind of person who uses my body i only use my head well wait (laughs) but but the lord gave you a body right and so your, your your call is to figure out lord how can i be using this to your glory one of the elements that I like, and, and here I didn't actually re- regrettably mention the name of the magazine, and, and we'll talk, mention it again in more detail, but it's, it's Mortis and Tenon, uh magazine, and on your website, uh, com, you also have a podcast that is really solid, and, and I have, I've, I've enjoyed 
uh, much. Uh, I've not been able to listen to everything, but but I've, I've enjoyed what I've what I've heard. And your most recent podcast is called "In Defense of Maintenance," mm-hmm. which is, I mean, that's a really great start for for those who who, who want to do something with their hands. Because I can say, for for me, coming in when, when I've been in, in meetings all day. Or I've been doing, you know, preparing a sermon or something like that, or, or teaching. I don't want to come home and sit with a book, or you know, or, or, or like if I've been studying all day, or I don't want to have more extended conversation when I've been talking all day. I want to come home and have something that's slightly repetitious, mm-hmm. but that does require a little bit of thinking, but thinking in a different way, and and that's what maintenance is like mm-hmm. this past weekend just cutting limb, you know t- trimming an oak tree that was that was a nice break from what i had been doing before so so just something as simple as maintenance whether it's your your car or your plumbing or learning to do things like that can be a, a great way to to start broadening your knowledge yeah, and there's an interesting, um, I don't know if you've read Matthew Crawford's Shop Class as Soulcraft. Yeah, it's but really it's, good. Yeah, it's a great book. It's so interesting because he, ta- he compares um, when he was in college and he was working as an electrician, and he's also saying when he was working on motorcycles, it's a similar thing that um, you can work all day and you run wires and you get everything set up and you get everything wired and you flip that switch and it either works or it does not. Right? You either did it correctly or you did it wrong. And he contrasts that way of work with when he was working at a think tank. What is right and wrong? It's just sort of this amorphous environment where you just think things through and there's no definitive, yes, good job, success. Right. And so he, he was contrasting that. And I think that's really valuable. Um, you need to be able to expand your... I, I think it's important to learn philosophy, learn theology, expand your thinking... And that you're, it's not just flipping a switch, but you also have to exercise that capacity uh, as well as to learn just how to fix something. And then you close that door and it's just, it closes so nicely. Yes. I <laughs> it mean, it, stick. <laughs> there's so much, and, and you emphasize skill. You, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the importance of learning skill and mm-hmm. hanging a door properly takes skill. I mean, we may think, well, you just nail a frame in and and you just, you know, put it up. But some of the way, you know, doors now are are much more uh, managed than they were at one time. But, I mean, what we, much of what we take for granted, there's a lot of skill that that goes into that if it doesn't come prepackaged for Mm -hmm. us. And that... Again, as you said, we can't learn every single skill, but there is joy in acquiring the ability to do something. I remember the first time I ever, it's a small thing, but I, I changed a, I, I changed an electrical socket and a light fixture that was all in the same circuit. And... It was nice because I was able to, you know, then plug in, you know, put a plug into the socket and it worked. And I turned the light on and it worked. And I thought, mm. this is fantastic. So, so, so I mean, that's, yeah. but, but I, I had to learn, that was, my dad was an electric, you know, he, yeah. he, he practiced uh, and worked on electrical, uh, well, he, he was not a certified electrician, but he's an electrician. So mm-hmm. that was, you know, it was helpful. I learned from him, but now it's something I can carry, and and I and I teach my son now how to change a light fixture. So so mm-hmm. so there, there there is something good even in just simple skills like that. Well, and that that's such a beautiful uh, example of you know I think what work is uh, created to be. That work I would I would define work as serving from love. Right. So it's this idea of work is not just something you do for your own self, but it's something that you are employing the gifts that God has given you to serve other people. 
And what's interesting about that is um, you were learning how to do something and we learn through mentorship. We learn through uh, guides, people who have been before us and they teach us and they bring us along. You can't just download something or just be off on a remote island by yourself and learn how to wire this. That's not the way we learn things. And so what's so beautiful about that is, you know, we do have, you know, this mediated form. We can jump on YouTube and try to learn something. And that's, of course, handy and valuable. But what a beautiful thing that your your dad taught you how to do that. And so that was, uh, a part, you know, participating in your dad's hard-earned wisdom and knowledge. You were spent time with him, took that in, and now you can pass that on to your kids. That's That's what it's all about. That's just a beautiful thing. Well, it, it is, I will confess, at the time, I did not find it as uh, satisfying to my soul. With, it never is uh, in the moment. <laughs> I mean, because, well, and it's, some of this, we, I mean, I remember we were, I, I was four, 13 and 14 years old. We were building a house. And I would look out and I would see my friends on their bikes doing, you know, going places and and, and and just doing other things and I thought I'm crawling under a house right now but but I would not take anything for that now hmm. and I'm you know that that's just that's part of the discipline that parents give their their kids yep. and and that that those who are are more experienced who are mentors can give those who are less experienced. God did not, contrary to someone like John Locke, who who says that we we all come into the world totally uh, a blank slate, very individualistic in its in in, in his way of, of saying in his anthropology, we are born into communities, mm-hmm. and are and can learn a lot from other people. In, in those communities, if we're willing to do so. Yeah. So, then there, there's a there's a craze now for for handmade products. People like things that are rough, you know, uh, beer that is that, that that's locally brewed and, and and things, you know, handmade furniture, tables that are that looked like a, a, a piece of wood was just sawn, you know, <laughs> they, 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 they just cut a tree open and, and put it right, put it right there. What is the draw to handmade furniture and, 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 and handmade uh, products? What, what is it about that that makes us desire those things? Yeah, it is, a, it is, I think, a curious thing, you know, especially because being a woodworker and, uh, you know, having friends who are making a living building fine furniture very very precise fine furniture and they go to coffee shops and they see those reclaimed rough sawn slabs and with urethane all over them and they're just irate this is not craftsmanship and you know they're they're offended their sensibilities are offended um but i think what what i see that is so interesting about that is i think first it's important to identify that people do value that okay point one people are valuing something they see in that so then our question as craftsmen would be what are they valuing in that and rather than to say yeah but that's garbage no what what are they seeing and it, a lot of times what they're seeing so like i would say you know the coffee shop slab with the big mill marks across it where this is, you know, you see evidence of a 48 inch wide circular saw blade. This is just industrial cranking it out manufacture, right? I see that and I just see big machine industry. It's not very attractive to me. It's not quaint. It's not, it's not what they see, right? But what they see is roughness. What they're seeing is evidence of construction process. Because what a lot of people are used to seeing today, our built environment is obviously totally homogenous, smooth, no rough edges everything is rounded over for safety everything is just nice and proper and people are desperate for something else they want to see how stuff is put together they want to see evidence of construction and tool marks and that sort of thing but you know for someone who's not a craftsman they're they can't tell the difference between 
a circular saw mark and a hand plane track. Right. Uh, it's just it's a rough it's a rough surface, and that reminds me that someone made this, and so I can say, "Amen, that's great. I appreciate that you are appreciating craftsmanship." And so I think it's important for, for example, furniture makers to then say, "Let me teach you about how furniture is actually made," and then people will go, "Oh, okay, so that." those marks aren't actually the same thing and that's the beginning of knowledge and understanding of, of this craft um, and it's of course not essential that everyone knows how what tool marks are what but I think the valuing of that is important so the question is what are they seeing I think what's interesting about that is um, let's just say you had a table that's that is CNC'd right no human hand touched it right you you put materials on the table and the CNC creates this or a 3D printed table, right? Not made out of wood, but just something else. And so then what are you not seeing there? You will see design. Somebody crafted the design. They worked it through. They drew a bunch of drawings. They came up with ideas. But what you're not seeing is any physical evidence of any person putting the thing together. So what are you seeing in the mill marks? What people are seeing is people did this. This was a made thing. People were involved in the making of this. So just like um, just like the way that um, art critics are assessing the brush strokes of master painters and they're interpreting the brush strokes the vigorous nature or the smooth nature and they're saying oh yes this communicates this artistic intent you know maybe perhaps you could read too much into that but I don't think so. Um, you know when you learn how to use hand tools for instance it's the same thing. I can look at a piece of handmade furniture and see, whoa, what happened there? You can just see it in the tool mark. And obviously, the more you know the tools and the more you have that skill, the deeper your appreciation and knowledge is going to be. Um, but at any, at any level, when you see tool marks, you see authorial voice. You see someone made that. And so I think that it's important to see that as communication, right? communication there's there's a voice coming through but communication is it's this common union this communion you're having with a person you're saying i uh, somebody made this or my grandfather made this mm -hmm. or a master craftsman made this notice the reference there every time they're referring to another person but when you have a really great design that was put together by a firm and it was very precisely manufactured you say what? Yeah, I don't know. You say I have the best of the best, but you're not referring to any other mm. person. And I think that's the fundamental difference. And not everybody, you know, identifies that or can articulate what they're interested right. in. But I, I see that as a common thread. I think people want to see people. And that is what they're identifying, that there's someone at the other end of this. Yes. So what or, or also how do you define beauty in craftsmanship what, what is I mean beauty is objective I mean that, that, that that's a clear I think fact of God's world that it's not purely uh, up to each person's interpretation while, while, while people appreciate different elements of beauty you know beauty is objective so how how do you define or, or even describe beauty in craftsmanship uh that, that is an extremely hard uh question to answer in terms of providing a definition that you're sure oh, yeah that that i get it i can really i can get that but i think what i would say is um you know there, there have been different attempts throughout history william hogarth in 17 i think it was 53 wrote an analysis of beauty and he was describing he was looking out on the world and his whole objective was to try to communicate um an understanding of beauty, how to teach people how to see beauty who aren't specialists, who aren't art critics. So he was looking at creation and trying to break down, okay, diversity and variety and, you know, for all these different form and different things. But, and so there are, you can kind of get down into, you know, symmetry and diversity and those kinds of descriptors of trying to see patterns in creation. And I think that's a, a valuable thing. But I think the the starting place with that, especially because I think you said beauty and craftsmanship, um, not just beauty in general, beauty right. in nature or beauty in something else. But if we're talking about craftsmanship in particular, it's important then to have a clear sense of what do we mean by craftsmanship? 
you know, what is, what is the definition of craftsmanship? Because I think that once you have that clear, then what success looks like, what beautiful craftsmanship will then become clear to you. So, and, you know, I think craftsmanship, if you just look up the definition, jump in a dictionary and look up craftsmanship, all the dictionaries are going to offer you something that has to do with the exercise of skill. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's not particularly insightful or helpful because it just kicks it down one more level to, okay, what do we mean by skill? What in particular is so valuable about skill? What is skill? Um, and so I think craftsmanship, it's, it's in a, kind of an obscure uh, definition, but I would describe craftsmanship as attuned dexterity. Uh, and that may not be an intuitive uh, definition, but it's, I think it's an important one to understand because if we think about craftsmanship purely in terms of dexterity, manual ability to execute a task, then I think we're missing a huge component of craftsmanship. Also, what that would mean, if, you, if, you, if your definition of craftsmanship is reduced to manual exercise, then you're excluding poets. Mm-hmm. You're excluding philosophical arguments, right? You can't craft an argument anymore. So we have to have a, a definition of craft that encompasses this. And so um, that there's also this, this exercise of skill or dexterity. You can have a mental dexterity. But uh, there's also this attuned nature, this attentive and careful and uh, paying attention to uh, aspect to it. So you have the ability, let's just say you're, sawing to a line you actually have practiced you have this embodied knowledge that you can saw to the line but it's an attuned dexterity so that you understand how many teeth per inch you have you know the the grain orientation you know that this the moisture content of this wood not the number but you know that hey this is a little bit green it's a little wet so i need to you know use my wrists in a different way so you're attuned to the particularities of the moment and that, I think, is the heart of craftsmanship. So this, this uh, attention and care to the moment and the ability to do it. So then the question is, what would be a beautiful success of that is being able to execute something right, to, to hit the line, to put it in the right spot, to know the nature of the material, to put things together so it's not going to fall apart in a year because you don't understand how wood works and moves. Right. And that is, I think, the, the beginning, the heart of beauty and craftsmanship is knowing the materials, knowing your tools, and having the skill to use them in conjunction. I think that's the beginning place of, of beauty and craftsmanship. There's a lot one can build on with that. I remember, so in, in Exodus, we're told when building the tabernacle... God himself picked out the craftsmen mm-hmm. that would fashion much of the intricate elements and details. Uh, he, he says that it, he wants Bezalel to be the one because he is wise in the, the skill of, of, of working with materials and I I used to question that years ago because I, I always thought wisdom was something that you had when it comes to kind of the gray areas of right and wrong you know so there's there's you know don't don't do this you know following the commands let's say uh, you know don't tell a lie or don't bear false witness, but then what about in these times when someone is being innocently hunted down? Do you protect them or not and say that they're not here? You know, that's wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, but, so wisdom in, in the sense that, that a craftsman would have it was kind of confusing. But of course, when we see something that God says and it doesn't make sense to us, it's not God's problem. So that means that, yeah. that, that that we have to there's something we have to learn and so so seeing that wisdom in the older sense in uh, a company it it encompasses craftsmanship yeah. a, a, cra- a a good craftsman is someone who is wise 
who knows how to, to who can use their skill intuitively. Because I, I know I heard you on, on another podcast talk about the moisture content in wood. And you said that you cannot work with wood that's been outside that when you immediately bring it, you can't just bring it right to your workshop and start working with it immediately mm-hmm. because it has to adapt to to the, I believe you said the, humi- the humidity in your, and, and, and even the temperature in your workshop. And I thought, but before I heard you say that, I, I would never have thought of that before. Mm-hmm. But this is something that you learned. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a development of wisdom. And, and if you don't have wisdom, you can't produce something that's beautiful at least not as beautiful yeah well yeah and it's and i think it's important to highlight for the listeners that you're not even just comparing by analogy skill and wisdom that we're talking about the same hebrew word yes yes Yes. skill wisdom so when in proverbs the wisdom that solomon had this is the same word that is described that craftsmen have or the sailors in the psalms that are at their wits end they're at the end of their wisdom. Yes. They don't have wisdom anymore, which means the ability to pull the sails and manipulate uh, the ship to be able to, to get out of the, the storm. Um, this is the same word. And so yeah, you're right. It's important that we, when we think about knowledge, wisdom, um, that we, this attuned dexterity applies to all of these different things, that there's a time that it is right to answer a fool according to his folly. And that there is also a time that it is not right to answer that fool according to his folly. And it's wisdom that knows the difference. And that is exactly what craftsmanship is. That's exactly what woodworking is and blacksmithing and, all, and plumbing and you know, auto mechanics. That you know the time and you say, I know what I can do here. Or to use your example of the boards with the moisture content, you know, if you were to look up online the, all the rules all the all the laws about how, how to be careful with woodworking they all say at least two weeks in your shop you have to acclimate and then someone's going to walk up as this wooden rule say okay 14 days have now passed now it is safe but you already know that as soon as you just apply a formula to the real world that god has made you're already missing something that those are training wheels to get you to observe patterns but i actually can work boards immediately as long as I take precautions and uh, look out for certain things or plane in a certain way. So that that's just wisdom. It's just knowing the world. It's counseling. It's pastoral work, a pastoral work that you know that you can't just apply a formula to a congregant. You got to know them and say, if I say it this way, if I pray for them and move them along this path, I can, you know, uh, exercise this wisdom in this way. Well, and that is why for me in counseling, I, when I'm talking to someone who is younger and not as experienced in counseling and, and they say, well, well, when do you begin applying scripture? You know, at what point in, 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 when the person's talking about their problems, do you, do you bring in scripture or at what point do you start exhorting? And, and (laughs) I, I don't have a clear answer for that because it's something you just have to feel you i mean it's a combination uh, of experience uh, of hopefully walking in the spirit but but it's not some type of charismatic something where where you just you know like the spirit kind of you know buzzes your doorbell and said okay now it's time no it's 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 something that you walk into and it i mean and, and you know there are times, I'm sure, I mean, you've not told me this, but I'm sure there are times when you're probably baffled. You come to a problem and you say, I don't know exactly which way to go here. Mm-hmm. And that's with everyone, no matter how skilled you are. You run into those times, and this is how God helps us to grow in skill, yeah. in, 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 exactly. in wisdom. So it, it's yeah. not, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say, um, you know, there, this this invitation to participate and skill. Some uh, one of the writers. Uh, I'm, well, I should say, at least this, there's a concept from a writer who's that this concept has been deeply profound and helpful to me, and it's by um, uh, uh, 
psychologist uh, by the name of uh, Mihai Csikszent Mihai, and he talks about flow, the psychology of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually focused on happiness, right? Right. How are people happy? And he's he's operating out of a secular perspective. But what basically he's saying is, he's saying that people experience the most happiness when they're in this state of flow, this work, this mode of work where everything's clicking, everything's grooving and time, you know, time is irrelevant and you're just doing your thing and it's, everything's working. And you're like, this is what I'm called to do. Right. That kind of mode. Um, and he says, people are the most happy when they experience that kind of thing in their life most, which we could probably relate to that. But what's interesting is he says, okay, so how do you get into that state? Um, how, how do people find themselves there? Um, and so he said, basically, it's a balance between challenge and skill. And so what you want is, of course, if you have way more skill than the challenge is demanding of you, you're just bored, right? It's not hard for me to brush my teeth. That's a boring thing to me because I, I can do that quite well, <laughs> right? Um, right? But if it's very challenging and I don't have the skill at all playing Mozart, I'm overwhelmed, full of anxiety. I can't, I can't handle this, right? So you want some sort of balance, but what you want to, you know, want them to be matched. But what's really fascinating about that is you want the challenge, he said, to be just a little bit beyond your skill level, because that is an, as I would put it, is an invitation to participate. It's an invitation to engage, to grow. That's the situation where you say, now, wait a second, this, this isn't, why is this not working right? Now you're invited, you're invited to engage and as you increase in skill, you can take on more challenging things. And as you move up further and further down both sides of both axes, right, you're increasing, you're deepening your appreciation, deepening your joy and satisfaction, saying, this is what God has called me to do. I'm able to really help people in this particular way. And it's, you know, it's full of joy. You enjoy the work of your hands. So I think that's so interesting that some people think, you know, they think of craftsmanship or skill as I just want to be able to have the skill so that it's easy and then you're done and then you can just do something. But no, no, that the whole idea is that you're always growing and pushing and challenging yourself. That's where the joy is found. So that's, I think what's, what's so, um, <laughs> to use a, a, a funny word, intoxicating yes. <laughs> about, the, yes. about the pursuit of craftsmanship. It's just, it's uh, endlessly, if, if you do it right, if you actually are trying to get better and improve, it's endlessly exciting. It, it, it may be a somewhat obscure example, but I, I, I remember the first time, well, so, so I'll say the point first. The, the point is that you are able, when, when you were in that, that place of, of, when you can enjoy the challenge and, and you, are, you have the skill to match it, you are able to to welcome others in, and others can then enjoy that. I, I think of that. I still remember the first time I ever saw the, the Danish uh, concert pianist Victor Borga on television. Do you remember him at all? He was on. No, on he was I, on public television familiar. years okay. ago. But he was he was brilliant in playing the piano. But he was also a comedian, so he could play. But he would, he, he was so good that he could, I remember one time he, he would play a piece and, and it didn't sound very familiar, uh, but, but it was lilting, the, the, the notes were going down and then he, he, he kind of stopped, he cocked his head, he turned it upside down and it, and he was playing the William Tell Overture. It's, so it's like he was playing it the <laughs> right way. And of course the, the entire concert hall just burst out laughing and anyone who's watching was able to laugh and he would do things like this throughout the night but what people could enjoy and I thought about this later they they were able to enjoy someone who was having fun yeah just visually you could not just see but feel him enjoying himself and others could then join in. They could participate in the delight of that. But that takes amazing skill mm. to where you can welcome people in. Because you're, whether you are building a house 
or a piece of furniture or you're playing for a concert hall or something, you are in a sense carrying the people who are observing or who, or who are who are engaging with you. You're carrying them with you into mm-hmm. this. And that's a lot of that's a lot of responsibility, that's a lot of weight, and so it takes a great degree of skill to bring people along to that extent. Yeah. So you are, in, in addition, certainly to, to, to what what you've to what you do every day in in your woodworking. You also have you know you've written a book on a man named well it's called Hands Employed to Write the Furniture Making of Jonathan Fisher. So just talk a little bit about Jonathan Fisher and and what it was that motivated you to write about him. Yeah, uh, Jonathan Fisher was um, a congregational minister, um, late 18th, early 19th century in Maine, rural Maine, uh, actually 10 minutes from my house, mm. just you know, down the road. Um, and so in my town, in my area, he's there's the, the Jonathan Fisher house. You know, it's the old uh, historical house around here. Um, and what the way that I was introduced to it was I was restoring antique furniture and people kept telling my clients kept telling me you really need to stop at the Jonathan Fisher house because you know he made all his own furniture which when you restore old furniture that's the thing you hear from every single client that they say oh my grandfather made this you know everybody has the story's built right um and so it's it's not often the case that those those stories match the reality of you can look at something and say well no i can see x y or z so I went to the Fisher house kind of skeptical um, and thinking, you know, it's probably full of a bunch of Victorian furniture and it's probably not connected to Fisher. That's usually what happens with that. But that actually was not what I found. I found a lot of furniture um, that looked right for the period that I was told was found in the house when it was abandoned in the early 20th century. Um, and then this is the president of the board told me, oh, and he wrote about this furniture in all of his daily journal records all of his diary i said excuse me his diary what do you mean and basically that was the beginning of this you know head first dive into understanding this man i got a copy of the transcribed and then typed and then photocopied uh diaries 35 years of daily records of everything he did um he built furniture he built his house he also made his own tools his uncle was a house right down in Massachusetts in 1798. He was there building an Ovalo plane and he was all that stuff. And then his tools have his stamp on it. 1798, a JF, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like all the pieces are there. And if you're, you know, if you look at all into um, furniture scholarship, the world of furniture scholarship, that kind of thing is almost unprecedented. Mm. It, it doesn't really exist actually usually you'll have a a body of furniture from some makers or you'll find a a workshop whether it be a tool chest and maybe a a bench a workbench or something and maybe a few pieces of of furniture attributed to them but no journal records you know so those three pieces of um, the tools and the furniture and then the records just it's unparalleled that does not exist and this is just 10 minutes from my house and so I said, well, now I feel obligated. <laughs> I have to, you know, uh, spend time looking at this. And so when I wrote the book, I was focused on um, understanding that F- Jonathan Fisher as a furniture maker in rural Maine um, and what he was doing to supplement his meager ministerial salary. Uh, this area around then was frontier. It was, it was, he. It was actually a sacrifice for him. He had a call to Ashby, Massachusetts which was a much more um, urban sort of calling. And he said, there are so many benefits to this. There are other ministers around that can be supportive. And this is, I feel like this would be uh, such a great calling. However, I feel that the Lord wants me to go to this frontier wilderness uh, up in rural Maine at that time. And so he came up uh, in 1796 and built a house here and started. So he was, he was the minister at this congregational church and was building furniture to offset, you know, the, the, the lack of uh, substantive salary he had. 
Um, but what I saw in him in his journal records, there are several biographies written about him, um, and they focus on him more generally. Um, they're focused on his sort of general productivity or his, um, he was also, he was, people described him as a, a rural Jeffersonian polymath. You know, he mm. really was, he was a Harvard graduate genius, could have pursued that on at his funeral sermon. Um, the man who was, who was talking about Fisher said that, that there was, um, loss by diffusion, meaning he spread himself out. He was too much of a generalist, but if he really focused, he could have been amazing. Right which I think is telling and interesting because he didn't do that. He actually was doing surveying. He was always dabbling in mathematics. He was, um, uh, you know, I think seven or eight different languages, learning constantly, writing about it, building furniture. Um, he built a windmill to power his lathe. Oh so boy. Turning. Like, <laughs> who is this guy? Who does this stuff? Um, and so, this guy is so interesting. And, but what was also interesting is all of those biographies focus on all that stuff. But what, and then some of them i I think are actually quite dismissive of his sort of oppressive religious, you know, obsession with his sin. And clearly he was the minister. So he must've like had a, a grip on all the, the, um, the whole town and they all feared when he walked in surely because he was so, you know, severe. Right. But then you read his diaries and you say, have you even have you even read his diaries? No. His children described him as an indulgent father. I mean, what kind of severe, harsh taskmaster is this? And you see this warmth and this piety uh, exuding out of everything he's writing. Mm. And he was very, I, I get the sense, one of the things he repented of, one of the things on, you know, regularly that he struggled with as he said, when he was in his prayer time, he repented because his mind would go back to mathematics. He was working out math problems as he was trying to pray. And that's not a, one of my sins. Yeah, it was a continual struggle for him. And I think that's interesting to think about the kind of mind he had. He was so technical, so precise. He was a genius. And he was always inventing all these uh, me uh, mechanical contraptions and stuff. And so you see that kind of person and you can just imagine, just guess his personality. He probably was pretty cold. He probably was calculating all the time. Mm -hmm. But that's not the same thing as being oppressive or dour. Right. Um, he was full of love, and his, his diaries are, are full of that. So in his book, you know, I was, I was commissioned to write this book. I started working on it, got a publisher to write about his furniture making. But because of the, the, um, the disservice that this part this part of those biographies have done for him i thought i think we need to actually take fisher on his own terms it's not only because i'm a christian and i want to have the christian angle i think it's just responsible history to say right right well, let's not presume he's just you know whatever and so i what i saw in fisher was for him um that this this ideal that we often talk about the head hand and heart right this classic sort of trio I saw he embodied that. Um, he talked, the work of his hands was absolutely connected with his interests in mathematics. And he was, um, he toured nail and cotton factories down in Massachusetts right before he came up and built his windmill to power his lathe. <laughs> so he's just relentlessly researching, trying to come up with, he invented his own clockworks. He built his clock, but he invented the works, the whole design of oh, it my. when he was in college. And so you see that the mechanical, the um, intellectual sort of work connected with the manual work of, of building things. And then the name of the book, Hands Employed to Write, is, is an, uh, a reference to one of his journal entries when he was um, out in the field uh, haying. He was, he was, you know, cutting down hay. And he's, he said often his diary records, if you've read 18th, early 19th century diary, diary records, they're pretty boring, right? Right. AM did this, PM did this. But then there are some that just, he has this whole paragraph description of this event, right? And this was one of those. And he said that he was standing in the field and he stopped and he considered, he said, hands, what a blessing they are when employed aright. Hmm. And that for me was like, that, that's this man's paradigm is that he sees hands are good put them to work, do the good work God has called me to do. And it's, they're a blessing 
right? It's full of joy. It's good for you when you're doing it aright, when you're really trying to do good work that's blessing other people and um, that you're, you're faithful to the task God's called you to. And so this head, hand, and heart, this piety and the manual uh, interests and the academic interests were all just inextricable. They're all bound up together for Fisher. And I said, that's got to be the story that's told about this man, not just the stylistic influences, <laughs> not just the tool-making idiosyncrasies. Those things are there. But what's most rich and beautiful is that he's a model for us uh, that we can look at this man and say, I want to reintegrate these areas of my life so I'm not so lopsided. I'm not so just an academic, just a craftsman, just a, you know, just a religious person. And, you know, but all of these things are all together. And that's the wholeness of the human person that we're, I think, called to uh, keep unified. Hmm. Well, in addition to that, I mean, you, you, you've written books that are technical as well that, that help people learn how to build. You've written about uh, one book on furniture, joinery, and also you've written on one called Work, a bench guide to hand tool efficiency. So you have your, your hands, literally and figuratively, in, in a lot of projects. Now, talk a little bit about the magazine, Mortis and Tenon. What, what, what is the emphasis in that? You, you, very good website. I will recommend that uh, for people to check that out, to, to look at some, some of the issues. You have back issues available, but, but just talk a little bit about Mortis and Tenon and, and what your goals are with the magazine. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey. You know, I um, just by way of, you know, explaining what I'm trying to accomplish, it this kind of was just, I, I, I often think the Lord just plopped this in my lap. This was not what I was intending to do actually at all. Um, I love doing it, but it was not, the vision for this was not crystal clear. Um, I was re- restoring antique furniture. I learned how to do woodworking primarily, though not exclusively, uh, using a bunch of machinery. Um, And that wasn't what I was interested in. I wanted to learn more about hand tools. So the knowledge I got about hand tools, I pursued that harder. Um, Also went to a school to learn to restore antique furniture then after that. And so in rural Maine, I was taking 18th century furniture apart to repair it and therefore seeing the guts, seeing the inside, seeing how this stuff was actually made. And what was interesting to me was I saw that the, um, the interior surfaces were quite rough and you saw the tool marks and it looked like it was done really fast. It looked like it was hasty work, right? But what I was used to is people today say, hand tools are slow, machines are fast. But then I looked at 18th century furniture and I said, that doesn't look like they were in a Zen state, <laughs> happily planning. They were, it looked like they were cranking it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really uh, fast. So I thought, I actually want to understand. It's one thing to, to understand the tools and see what they look like and how they work. But I was actually interested in the process of how were these things used? Not just the mechanics of the tool, but the, the craftsman. How do you hold the thing? How do you move in a way that makes that kind of tool marks? And that was the beginning, that was the seed idea for Mortis and Tendon Magazine, because I just started researching this, um, this, this hands-on research, this shop-based research, using old tools, using early 19th century tools, and basically trying to uh, replicate the tool marks so I can rediscover this process. What does it look like for someone to work with this kind of efficiency? Um, and underlying all of that, was it was not just historic reenactment just to for historical curiosity but it's actually because of basically so much of what we've talked about in this episode um is that i wanted to be participating in a fully engaged way that is actually efficient and fun and so i said okay how can the efficiency of hand to- how can you recover efficiency of hand tools for the 21st century is that possible and I think it is. <clears throat> and that's the pursuit of Mortis and Tenon, is trying to understand that. Uh, we don't get dressed up in period clothing and wish we were in the 18th century at all. Um, we appreciate that. And we, I love, you know, for example, Colonial Williamsburg and some of those guys write articles for us. 
But the goal, the aim is for engagement. So we can learn to use hand tools for, you know, as a as a picture, as an embodiment of the very thing that we've been talking about in this podcast episode. Um, so, you know, we are also one of the things in, you know, as it's period furniture making is often the category we're lumped into. Uh, there's a lot of focus on uh, particularly like colonial American furniture. And there's a lot of that in New England where I'm from. Um, and a lot of that um, scholarship has been done and it's, you know, there's a lot of that stuff that's established. What I'm particularly interested in is not a certain time period, but pre-industrial work. And there still is pre-industrial work done today in some parts of the world. So what my particular aim with this magazine as it's developed and grown is it's not just some sort of New England old-timey thing at all. It's actually about working with your hands with tools to build things. Particularly, it's about furniture, uh, wooden things, houses as well. But so our, my interest is is global. I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand about how people have built things all around the world uh, throughout history, and try to reclaim the beauty and efficiency of that. Not to start a cult, not to say machines are from the devil, but to right. say, wow, this is so rewarding. Uh, so that's that's the aim of Mortis and Tenon. Um, and so that's what we continue to do twice per year. We publish an issue of the magazine. Um, and it's been, it's been, it's, it took off. Issue one took off. And I thought I was going to order 500 copies, which is the smallest print run I could get from a printer. That was as small as they were able to print. Um, and, but right away it was immediately vastly exceeded that. And it's been a full-time job and I have a few friends working with me. So it's a, it's a kitchen table operation, but it is feeding three families. So we're grateful well, it for is it. a very, very sound and very well put together magazine, uh, and and I, I have particularly appreciated the, the that you you have articles not just from one section of the country, but article you know about people who are doing things as you said from different parts of the world because. The, other other places besides colonial America actually built furniture and homes <laughs> that were well done, uh, or even outside of Western Europe. It's like there's there's life out there. Uh, yes, <laughs> th- th- there is, and th- they're not, you know. So that it, it, it is really something to, that we can appreciate. And and I know on the website you also have a um, you have a, an eight week apprenticeship program yep. that, that you, you, you highlight on there. And then, of course, we didn't even get to today that you're, you're working with the Greystone Institute, uh, mm-hmm. who I, I would hope to have someone uh, from, from Greystone to talk to in, in, in the coming months. But just the mechanical arts program, which people yep. can, again, they can get more information on, on your website about that as well, uh, Morris and Tenon Mag. So, anyway, this has been fantastic and mm. very mind-expanding. Not mind-blowing, but mind-expanding. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So, uh, is there anything, Joshua, you, you want to tell us about b- before we go? No, I think that's it. I think it's just um, what I would say is I, it is so easy to feel discouraged it's so easy to feel like, you know, I wish I was at a certain place. Um, but and, and that's fine to feel that way as long as it's motivating you to get excited about rolling up your sleeves. Yes. Um, but it should never be debilitating. And and I think, you know, I have my, my best friend working with me um, every day in the magazine. And we're also restoring an 1821 house. And so we're timber framing and doing all sorts of stuff and plumbing and electric. And I don't know how to do a lot of the plumbing and electric and all that sort of stuff and you know i have this good friend here teaching me showing me stuff and i think that's the thing if you if you feel discouraged don't call your friend say hey can i join you or can you help me with this and that's the that's the beginning and the that's the the path to uh constant engagement and and appreciation and that's the thing is that it expands your appreciation for the world your appreciation for the thing itself and for the people who have the skills that you admire, you say, right. wow, the world is so big and beautiful. And I just want to be, I want to know more about it. 
So that's the call. Um, it shouldn't be discouraging. It should be uh, an invitation to participate. Thanks, Joshua. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The Good Life Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Luss. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.